This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to look at Hebrews, but first turn to Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Looking tonight at Enoch, who is referred to in Hebrews 11, but um, the account of his life, uh, the entire account, is found in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, verse 18 tells us when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And then picks up in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then we turn over to Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. We pray that you would come and to meet with us in the study of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight from the scriptures, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that Enoch, whose entire record in the Old Testament spans all of four verses, gets as much press in Hebrews 11 as Joseph, whose life makes up a fourth of the book of Genesis? He does. In fact, he almost gets more, 5 and 6. Joseph's referred to over in chapter 11, verse 22. Which raises the question, who was Enoch that he gets this kind of attention, and he gets included, this otherwise obscure figure from the Old Testament, that he gets included here in this list of these Old Testament heroes of faith? Well, what do we know about Enoch? Well, basically what we find there in Genesis, he was the seventh from Adam uh, in line. Uh, seventh was sometimes seen as, as a place of distinction. The seventh was seen as something somewhat special. You may know the significance of the number seven is indicating the fullness or completion or perfection. Um, he was a prophet. Jude uh, verses 14 and 15 tells us that Enoch prophesied about the arrival of certain evil men. He was, of course, as we just read in Genesis 5, taken up uh, or translated into heaven. 
uh, without passing through death. And we also read that he was pleasing to God. Well, Enoch didn't die, therefore he didn't have a tombstone. But if he did, the epitaph might be something like pleasing to God. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? That, that, that's your life. That's, uh, in fact, God's own commendation of you. Pleasing to God. Well, I think we, whether that's on our tombstone or not, we do want to be pleasing to God. The question is how? And the lesson of Enoch is that we are pleasing to God as we live by faith. That's what we find here. To please God, we have to have faith. We have to have this faith that uh, propels us along on, a, if we want to look at verse 6 especially, uh, a progression of three steps. Enoch's life demonstrated this, and we have to as well. Each of these steps is an act of faith and involves an expression of Faith, which again is going back to verse 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, confidence in what we do not see, because we, it's based on the promise of God. It's seen with the eyes of faith. Well, what are those steps, each one an act of faith? Well, in verse 6 we read that uh, it's necessary to believe in God. Uh, it says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. We have to believe that God exists. Now, he said, well, yeah, that seems fairly elementary, fairly obvious, but it is where we start. That's where Enoch started. That's, that's where verse 6 starts here. To please God, we have to believe that he exists. Uh, now, to believe God exists is not enough to save a person. But, again, it's where we start. Now, that needs to be qualified. Uh, it means that we believe in the existence of a real God. Not a God that we conjure up in our imagination, that it seems real to us, but may not be real to others. Uh, but not the product of imagination, but the God who truly, objectively exists. As Francis Schaeffer would say, the God who is there. Uh, not here, but there. In, in reality. I love... Um, I love the way R.C. Sproul puts it, talking about the existence of God, and, and it's not just a matter of subjective preference or imagination. He says, all, all the wishful thinking in the world could not conjure God into being if he didn't exist. And all the atheistic unbelief and skepticism can't make God go away if he does exist, which is another way of getting to the fact that God either objectively exists or he doesn't. And faith here means belief that God is in the existence of a real God. It also means belief in the existence of a revealed God, a God who has made himself known, made himself known in creation. You know, the heavens declare the glories of God. Uh, God reveals himself to us in this world that he's made. Romans 1 tells us since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Enough revelation about God and creation to condemn, but not enough revelation about God in creation to save. And that's where the scriptures, of course, come in. But creation itself, in all kinds of ways, attests to uh, to a creator in its design, in its 
being sustained in, in systems as large as a galaxy, as small as an atom. Uh, creation points to a designer who values beauty, who values variety, a creator who is powerful, uh, a creator who is um, sustaining and upholding our universe, um, the one who is the cause of this universe. Um, I mean, you talk about evolution occurring, but it has to start from somewhere. But but where where does if even the Big Bang, where does the point of singularity come from? Uh, it can't pop out of nothing on its own. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews puts it this way back in three four: Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. He is the first cause. He is the source. He's the creator who brought something out of nothing. Uh, again, Sproul, who's well known for discussing these things, uh, says if he can if he can prove the existence of something. I mean, if you if you admit to the existence, the objective existence of something, the debate over the existence of God is over. Either that, or you have to say it all came from nothing, out of nothing, on its own, which some have tried to say, or that it's always existed. It's always been there. So we have to believe in the existence of a real God. We have to believe in the existence of a revealed God revealed in creation, revealed also in conscience, in, in our sense of what is right and what is wrong. Seared by sin, though it may be, it's nevertheless there. Paul talks about this in Romans 2. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, which is another way of saying by conscience, do by nature the things required by the law, they're a lot of themselves, even though they don't have the law. Even though they're not among the Jews, even though they didn't receive the Ten Commandments, they still have this innate sense of, of what is right and what is wrong. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or excuse them. Uh, that, too, is, is a revelation of who we are in the, the image of God. So God's revealed himself in creation, he's revealed himself uh, in our own hearts, in this sense of conscience. Um, so we're talking about this God who is there. He's made himself known. Uh, but again, people tend to think of God as, as something we create. You know, so we make him the way we want him to be. You know, J.B. Phillips, his famous book, Your God is Too Small. Some of the kind of gods or idea of God that, that people come up with. Uh, one, a familiar one, the grand old man God, you know, the grandfatherly, long white beard, indulgent God who's just glad you're having a good time, winks at your adultery. You know, he's just here to, to try to make us happy. Um, he describes the resident policeman God whose primary job is to make your life difficult and unenjoyable. Talks about the God in a box, private, exclusive, sectarian God. This is, this is, you know, this is my God. Managing director God, the God of the deists, you know, who wound up the universe, designed it, planned it, and just lets it, lets it go. It stands far off while it, it runs down like a child playing with his toys. He's got it running and then he gets distracted and runs off while his toy goes along until the battery runs down. God's wound it up and he's letting it go. He's not really involved. So, Faith in the existence of God is not enough to be saved, not enough to live a life pleasing to God, but it is a starting place. You have to have faith in the God who is there. 
this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So that's the first thing he says in, in there in verse 6, uh, is that those who are going to draw near to God, must be pleasing God, must believe that he exists. The second thing he mentions here is seeking after God in verse 6. Again, he rewards those who seek him. It's one thing to acknowledge the existence of God, to believe in that as a reality. It's another thing to seek God, to pursue God. Uh, and we have to seek him to know him, recognize that he is personal, that he's loving, that he's gracious. He's all of these things he reveals to us in the little book of Revelation, the scriptures, as opposed to the big book, creation. Um, and reveals himself to those who seek him. And think about Enoch. He had fairly, in, in one way, fairly minimal revelation. And he had creation, conscience. He was fallen, too. Um, but he didn't have quite as much to go on in terms of God's grace as, as we do. He didn't even have the, the, the knowledge of, of Abraham and, and what would happen you know, with, with him and with Israel. Uh, and yet he knew that God was more than just a, a great cosmic force. He believed he exists. He believes in a personal God. You, you can't you can't walk with the ground of all being. You know you can't enjoy fellowship with a first cause, right? Uh, for three hundred years in his life, Enoch walked with the living God, a God he knew was just, personal, merciful, forgiving, caring, all of those things, and so. Ever since Enoch, uh, you know, God calls on his people to, to know him, to walk with him. That is another way of saying just to live life before him, conscious of him. Um, some different places. Uh, one notable one from, from uh, Jeremiah 29, passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, not this verse, but that chapter. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Talking to his People. Of course, Jesus' admonition, Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, what is the reward God gives to those who seek him? Well, it's himself, to know him, uh, to draw near to him. And so uh, God rewards us with the knowledge of himself, which is a treasure far beyond anything that this, this world affords. Uh, I love Psalm 73. Uh, we looked at that in the in the men's retreat, talking about Asaph and his doubts and his struggles. But where he ends up, you know, as he envies the wicked, he says, "This was very troublesome to me until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their end. And then I saw the real situation that they're not in an enviable position. They're under the judgment of God, much as." Their life might appear easy and good now. But this is what he says toward the end of the psalm. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Enoch knew. That's what Enoch lived. He walked with God. He knew God. Um, well, then that brings us to the third thing. What was Enoch actually doing? Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so he shouldn't see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, back in Genesis 5, it says Enoch walked with God. In fact, it tells us that twice. He walked with God. Now, he's part of this lineage uh of Adam and Eve through Seth, the child they had after Abel, 
the line of the godly, and presumably in that godly line, all of them walked with God to one degree or another. You see, even at that point, this divergence of lineage in the line of the godly, the line of the the ungodly, the wicked. So you would assume in his line that Enoch was not alone, but there were others there who knew God, walked with him. But Enoch does seem to be outstanding among them for his godliness, for his relationship with the Lord. Now, the ESV's translation in Genesis 5 is based on the Hebrew text. The old Greek translation, the Septuagint, renders that uh, where it says Enoch walked with God, renders it Enoch pleased God. The writer of the Hebrews is reading from that Greek translation. And that's why he says here, Enoch uh, was commended, in verse 5, as having pleased God. He's quoting that Greek translation of the Old Testament, which in our translation from Hebrew reads, Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. He lived a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And so basically, you know, we're saying here to walk with God is to live a life that, that pleases God. Now, the idea of walking is a term that occurs in the New Testament a good bit. Um, the ESV tends to translate it to walk with, which is a great metaphor. Uh, the NIV, some others uh, tend to translate it to live because walk simply doesn't, you know, it's not literal. But it means this is how you conduct your life. Right. Well, some of those passages uh, Romans 6, 4, we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death so that we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, it has to do with how we live, this new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, familiar statement, we, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5, 16, walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, just as God, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And... Uh, Revelation 3, 4, Christ speaks of our fellowship with him in heaven as a walk. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Well, Enoch may have been unique in some ways, but he shouldn't be entirely unique because his walk with God, his, his living in a way that was pleasing to God, um, should be true of every believer. That is, the scriptures we've read have said, we need to walk in newness of life. We walk by faith. We walk by the Spirit. These are the ways that we live our lives, and so... Are pleasing to the Lord. Now that implies a couple of things. Number one, to walk with God, to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, implies that we have been reconciled to God. You don't walk with somebody who's your enemy, right? Our sin makes us enemies. It creates enmity, hostility, separation between God and between us. But Christ has has brought us together through His blood, through His death. He's reconciled us. And brings all who trust in him back into fellowship with God. Restores that walk, that life, and enables us to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And you can't walk with God until you've been reconciled to him through Jesus. The other thing it implies, not only have we been reconciled to God, but that in our lives we have, we have surrendered ourselves to God. We have offered ourselves up to God. Uh, we bow to his way. God does not go out of his way to walk with us in our sin. He may be present with us and show his grace to us uh, and convict us, whatever he needs to do, but, but God does not accommodate himself to our sin. We have to give up our sinful ways to walk with him. Amos 3, verse 3 says, Do two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, God's not going to agree to walk with you as you walk in sin. 
Just not going to do that. Walking with God means that we have left our way, turned from our sin, turned from our wrong paths, then to walk with God, walk in his way. And um, that's a a, a good thing. Uh, We might think of surrender as a bad thing. That's a good thing, to surrender up our, our ways, our sinful desires, our perverse practices, whatever it might be, to repent of sin, turn and walk with God, willingly to surrender to him. Now, we look at Enoch, uh, who was who was translated. The, the, the great example of walking with God, though, isn't Enoch. For one reason, we don't know that much about him. For another thing, he may have done it, but he didn't do it perfectly. A great example, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at his life, and we see what it was to walk with God. Enoch didn't die. Jesus did. Enoch didn't die because Jesus did. Enoch while he was taken in an unusual way, uh, like Elijah later uh, carried off to heaven without experiencing death, I, I presume experiencing glorification, uh, it wasn't because of his righteousness. It was because of the righteousness of Christ who would die for him. Now, God did take Enoch home in a rare way. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not for God took him. Like when Elijah was taken away and they wanted to go and look for them. And Elijah says, no, 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 don't bother. And say, well, we'll go look. And they go look around. Nope, couldn't find him. And Elijah says, well, yeah, told you, he's not here. He's gone. Uh, he was like Enoch. He was not for God took him. You know, I don't know what that looked like. With Elijah, it was a chariot of fire that, that escorted him, took him off, uh, carried him away. But with Enoch, we just know he was there and then he wasn't there. Did he just wink out? We don't know. But one thing's for sure, he was he was there, he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God just took him up, never experienced death. Probably won't regret that, but for the believer, death is just passing immediately into the presence of Christ anyway. Um, you know, I almost wonder if in heaven he would ask uh, you know, many others who were there through death, through, through their own death, uh, you know, what was that like? He never experienced it. He and Elijah, you know, never experienced death, and it's a good thing. But why, got, why did God take him? Um, well, various thoughts on that. Maybe, maybe he was experiencing ridicule. Maybe he was experiencing persecution. Although certainly many of God's people have experienced that in horrible ways, and God let them suffer and die from it. We don't know. Um, maybe God just had such favor on him, he just decided to, to take him home without going through death. Why did he wait 300 years? We don't know, unless maybe to give that time for Enoch to be a, a prophet, to be a witness in his generation. A lot of unanswered questions when it comes to Enoch. But at the same time, in a way, um, we'll experience that. Maybe through our death. Or for those who are alive when Jesus returns, uh, Enoch is something of a picture of that. First Thessalonians 4. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first at Jesus' return. The dead will rise first. The question was, well, what about those who have already died? Are they lost? Paul says, no. When Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, their souls are already with the Lord. Their bodies will be raised up, glorified, be reunited with a glorified soul to live in the new earth. Well, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, 
and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You know, Enoch and I think Elijah experienced in advance what believers who are alive when Christ returns will themselves experience. Being caught up, taken up, without dying, but immediately glorified into the presence of Christ. And he says, so we will be with the Lord forever. So our calling is in the meantime to walk with God, to know his word, to know his ways, to try by his grace, by his word, by his spirit to live lives that are pleasing to him. So whether we have died or are alive at Christ's return, we who walk with God here, enjoy walking with God here, will have an even more enjoyable walk with God then. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge there's not a whole lot that we know about Enoch. But the little we do know is most striking. Commended for his pleasing life, his walk with you, taken to you in such an unusual way. Prophet, Lord, a witness to righteousness by his words and by his life. Father, we don't anticipate that we would be taken in the way that Enoch was. It's a fairly select set. But, Lord, we do pray until whatever time you take us from this world, whenever and however that might be, that we would live in a way that pleases you. Uh, That, uh, Lord, if it, it pleased you, you could say of our lives that we lived in a way that pleased you. And so, Father, we pray that would be the case. Help us to walk with you and, Father, to uh, to anticipate that time when we will walk with you in glory without the hindrance of any sin at all. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.